this morning and turn to Psalm 51. This is a an really um, amazing psalm. You may not be able to re- recite it, but once you start to get into it and reread it, it'll be very familiar to you. Well, growing up, um, I think I have a slide of this, growing up in a small town of Gaylord, Minnesota, my dad owned the only body shop in town. And so he had this tow truck, and this is not the exact one. I was trying to find a picture of it, but it's the same year, make, and model um, as my dad had. <clears throat> and so imagine there's, there's me and my brother, so we have, there's four of us and a sister, and then we had some cousins who lived like kitty corner in this small town of Gaylord. And we didn't have Xboxes to play with. We weren't like in our screens. All you could do as a kid is go outside and creatively figure out stuff to do and play. We found it was really cool because we didn't go to Valley Fair that often. What we did is we unhooked those two things that hung off the back of the wrecker and there's like a little hook. And then what you do as a kid is you take right here on your belt loop, you actually can hook that in there and it'll actually lift you up and down. So when my dad would be in the house sleeping, me and my brothers and my cousins would go and we would hook on and we would just put the lever and we would go up and then you put the lever and you'd go down. But <laughs> what happened is sometimes your belt loop would rip and my mom told my dad and she said, Mark, the kid's belt loops are ripping. Well, we could just get by and say, well, we were just holding on to them, you know. And, but my dad pulled us aside and said, are you guys playing around with the tow truck? And we're like, no. No, we didn't, we didn't play around with the tow truck. We didn't want to get in trouble. But he then specifically, I remember him saying, you guys better never play around with that tow truck again. You never better get caught on the tow truck. So I remember that conversation. And um, I would say a few weeks later, we're out, all of us are playing around, we're building forts, and there's the tow truck sitting in the, in the street. And so all of us, someone said, all you got to do as kids is someone's got to come up with a brainy idea. And so we're like, let's do the tow truck. And so we go over there and we're all taking turns. Well, I'm in the middle of my turn and I've got this strap here and I'm lifted up and all of a sudden my dad comes storming out of the house. Everybody ran and left me hanging from this tow truck. And my dad comes down and he's like, just where I want you. I was dead to rights. I, there was no way out. I was caught, like, in the act of disobeying my dad. Um, at that moment, I had no defense. The only thing I could do was cry, and I could just beg for mercy. Like, I couldn't leave. Everyone else ran and hid. I was stuck. And we have a similar story here today in Psalm 51 with King David. So like me, my dad gave me some rules to follow, and I didn't follow them. David had some rules from God in how he was supposed to be a king and govern his people. The rules for a king were given to Moses in Deuteronomy, and I thought I would share a few of these rules that David was commanded to follow from the Lord. The first one was he was commanded to uphold justice. And you can find these rules in Deuteronomy 17. The king was expected to administer justice fairly and impartially, 
protecting the right of the people and ensuring righteousness in the land. He was also responsible to God. Um, he had to be obedient to God's law. The king was to diligently study and obey God's law, not turning aside from it, so that he would rule in accordance to God's commands. He was also to um, have humility and fear of God. The king was to maintain a humble heart and a reverence for God, a fear for God, to recognize his dependence on God's guidance and wisdom, whether he used to go to war, whatever he was to do, he was to depend on God. He was also commanded and had a rule to care for people. The king was to prioritize the welfare of people, protecting them from harm, defending the weak, and promoting justice and righteousness in the land. He was also to avoid excess of wealth and power. The king was warned against accumulating excess wealth, horses, and wives, as these could lead to pride, idolatry, and oppression. So Psalm 51 is one of the most well, more well-known psalms in the Bible. It is the heartfelt prayer of repentance and confession written by King David after he had committed a grievous sin. And so when you look at the, the intro to Psalm 51, you'll see these words, and this is why it's so memorable, because very few times the psalm place where David was at when he wrote this psalm. But to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so I want to share the story, the backdrop from 2 Samuel 11 about David and Bathsheba. So David was king, and he was, his men were out at war. And he saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, bathing on the rooftop. He then lusted after her, and he took her and uh, slept with her. She ended up getting pregnant. In that moment, David panics, and he tries to cover this up, and he has Uriah, who was out at battle, come home to sleep with his wife, um, and then it would all be gone. But he never did. So David decided to even go deeper in covering up his sin. He sent Uriah back to the front lines, but he said he was supposed to go to the hardest battle. And even though he said, hey, don't, hope he doesn't die, he was secretly trying to like, get this thing done. Well, Uriah ended up dying in battle. And then David, what he did is he took Bathsheba as his own wife, and he covered it all up, and no one knew. And he continued to be king. But in this story, David's sin did not go unnoticed by God. He was confronted by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, and I'll put that on the screen and I'll read this story to you. When Nathan went to David and he thought he had gotten away with this and covered up this sin. 2 Samuel 12, 1. He came to him and said to him, there were two men, king. He was talking to David. He was giving him a story. He said, there were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of the morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. 
And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David, executing his kingly duty to God, upholding justice, he says this, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing. And because he had no pity. Nathan then says to David, You are that man. David guilty. Hanging from his belt loop. Can't get away. He's standing for the God. Guilty of his sin. But wait. In this story, David's sin is not the most astonishing thing of this whole story. The most astonishing part is found in 2 Samuel 12, 13, after David's confession. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also puts away your sin. That's astonishing. How do you feel about that? How is that righteous injustice served for Uriah and Bathsheba? How does that sit with you? I wrestle. I mean, we wrestle. Like, that's not just. We're going to let that hang out there and At the end, we're going to circle back and understand how that's just of God to do that. So Psalm 51, in the the feeling of this, I mean, isn't this like sobering? We're standing here aware of probably our own sin, like David was before God, all-seeing, all-knowing God, and we try to cover up our sin. Psalm 51 is David's response to this conviction. As he's standing before God, he starts to pour out his heart to God and beg for forgiveness and restoration. As we study this psalm today, we'll see the depth of David's contrition and the richness of God's mercy. We'll also discover how this psalm speaks to our own need for repentance and forgiveness in our life. So let's, let's read. I'm going to read this to us, um, and then we're going to break it down, and we're going to pray and go through it together. So just imagine, have the image of David, all his sin before God. Caught on his belt loop, can't go anywhere, guilty. And here's David's response. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from your iniquities and cleanse me 
from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret places. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Even let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Oh, hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Oh, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my mouth and my mouth will declare your praises. For you will not delight in sacrifices or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in the burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, we know that this is heavy as we see this response from King David, from your word. We feel it in our own hearts. We are sitting here aware of our own transgressions and our own iniquities and our own sins. But would you help us to not prickle at your word? Would you allow us to allow your word to penetrate deep into our hearts as you pull roots of sin that seem to linger and never leave? Like a thistle that we can go and pull and seems like every time we try to pull this thistle out, it just breaks and the root remains. Lord, would you soften the soil of our hearts as you do work this morning, helping us to, to grow in love for you, aware of our sin, but more aware of your righteousness. And so we need your help, Holy Spirit, to do that softening Work. I need your help to help preach this word to my own heart and, and to us that it would have its full effect that, God, your desire for your word is to transform our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's to help us with this fallen sin nature in our lives. And so would your word have its full effect today by your power and through your word. And would you do good to your people 
this morning. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray and that we can expect these things from you. Amen. Amen. So back to Psalm 51. Uh, I think we're going to see today out of Psalm 51, I think it reveals God's redemptive invitation in Christ for true repentance, true forgiveness, transformation, and empowering us to live in his righteousness. There's really three points, three sections of this psalm that I'm going to show you and illustrate, and it's really one through six, this humble reality and need for repentance. David then transitions to the saving mercy of God in 7 through 12, and then in 13 through 19, the response of a worshiping life, this broken humility. <clears throat> so the first point this morning is the humble reality and need for confession. Like I said before, imagine David standing before God, hanging by his belt loop, caught and guilty. What defense does a guilty person have? My first defense was, have mercy on me, Dad. David's first, he starts out, he's like, have mercy, God. That's all I have. And he pleads to this loving and merciful God. Picture that David standing vulnerable before God in his dirtiness. There was a time when I was a boy and my mom had just bought me a brand new Nike white shirt. And I liked this shirt and I wanted to show it to my friends. So I, I went and showed my friends this nice shirt and we decided to play football. And so I'm having my white Nike shirt and I'm out playing football and I'm just like, You're, we play football rough. And so like we were in the grass and there's blood, you know, like someone elbowed you and you get a little blood on the shirt and then ripped. So I'm like, I remember going home. And I'm like, oh my gosh, my mom's going to kill me. I have this like stretched out neck, got some blood stains and grass and mud stains on my shirt. And I went home and I like tried to like sh- scrub them, right? I'm trying to scrub the, the, my, my shirt. And I couldn't, I could just get some mud off. And I'm like, man, how does mom do that? How does she like get the blood and like all this stuff out? And I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and so I ended up having to confess, and I had mom. I'm like, mom, you got to help me. I can't get this blood and some of this stuff done that I did. I'm sorry, and all this is a new shirt. And I'm standing there with this stained shirt. Well, David, imagine David standing before God with this, these stains. And it was that David's grass stains and blood stains on his shirt were the transgressions and iniquities and sin before a holy God. And that's what he's getting to here. He's cleansed, blot out my transgressions. These transgressions, like, is a willing, deliberate violation of God's commands. He knew exactly what he was doing in adultery and murder and cover-up and lies. He knew it. Guilty. And he cries for God to blot that out. These iniquities are just this deep, twisted, crooked state of being. It's just like this deep moral corruption of guilt. He knew he was lusting after women. He, was, he was, had this pride of his possessions. And he's like, I don't have to go to war. I'm just going to walk and look at my kingdom. And these things, he knew they were in him. And he's asking and pleading with God to wash them and to cleanse them. And so we see David standing there dirty. And he's saying, blot out 
my transgression. This image conveys the idea of removing or erasing sin. It's like that pen that my mom had that like scrubbing, it's like a miracle, it's gone. David's like, just I want this gone. I want this to, this mark of guilt and shame. He pleads with God to wipe it away, to remove it forever. And he moves to wash me of my iniquities. He's like, I need the deeper cleansing process. After blotting that out, I need to be washed deep. There's deep deepness in the stain of my life. And it's this idea of immersion in water and scrubbing clean. David longs to be washed thoroughly, to have every trace of sin and impurity removed. And he says, cleanse me of my sin. This is like a deeper purification, not just an outward but the purification of the innermost being. It's similar to this idea of refining process, of purifying metals. He was saying, like, when we purify metals, this, the impurities are removed, and what's left behind is something pure and untainted. And David's going to God. He's like, I need you to do this for me. And this, this dirtiness that David is experiencing, he says in verse Three, this, this is ever before me. Now he's coming clean. He may have covered it up from everybody else, but guess what? That sin haunted him. Day and night, his sin loomed up as in its accusing presence of David. His sin confronts him all day long. Can't get it off me. Doesn't leave my mind. I'm stuck You ever feel that way? Sin just comes rushing forward and you can't get the stain away from us. That's how David felt before a holy God. It's like in a courtroom as the, as the, as the, the facts of our case are being presented by an attorney. It's like they just keep going. Time after time they remind us of our sin as they try to convince the jury of how horrible we are. You want to crawl away? You want to be like my brothers and run away when dad walks out the door? And we do that to God. And we do that to each other. We just want it to end. How does it end? This happens with unconfessed sin in our own life, doesn't it? Don't we feel that? This is like a somber lament, and this is the goal of David's psalm, is that we would lament, and that we would feel what David felt. And then he recognizes, in his deep confession, that his sin was against the Lord. Verse 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now his sin was treason of the highest kind. And to say against you and you only, it might invite some grumbling from us that adultery and murder are hardly private matters. But it's true, sin can be against yourself. 1 Corinthians 
6, the Apostle Paul addresses sexual immorality as the, and highlights the harm it can cause to us. Sin can be against our neighbors. But rebellion against God is always the end of it. Our bodies are not our own. And our neighbors are made in the image of God. So ultimately, David's right against God. And God only has he sinned. At this moment, David went from how can I cover this up and cover my tracks to how could I treat God so? This full, humble, real, not fake confession. When David's sin was exposed, he experienced a shift in his perspective. Instead of being solely concerned with covering his tracks or appeasing human consequences, he realizes the enormity of his actions in rebellion against God. The realization of how he had treated God, whom he loved and served, overwhelmed him with deep remorse and desire for reconciliation. Verse 4b, David acknowledges his guilt means that anything God says in condemnation of him was righteous. God is pure in his judgment and holy in his wrath and justified in all his judgments. David's saying, I don't blame you if you do. I deserve full punishment of my sin. In verse 4 and 5, or sorry, 5 and 6, David starts out with this word, Behold, behold, look. David's not taking this moment to blame shift on his mom for his sin here. He's acknowledging that from early on I've seen this sin in my heart against you, God. And I also see truth in the inward being. You've taught me wisdom through your spirit. Like, what is going on here? There's this tension, if I'm being honest, of this moral corruption and this grace and wisdom that you've given me. I think the best way to draw an analogy of what David's feeling here is to introduce um, what the Apostle Paul might have felt. And we see this story in Romans 7. The Apostle Paul struggled like David did and like we do. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Within David, within Paul, within us, there exists this tension 
between both sin and the spirit and truth of God in our heart. It's engaged in this constant struggle. There's an internal war of the sin nature and the longing for righteousness through the spirit. And David's confessing this before God and getting real with God. You can't hide it from God. We try. We try to just like, oh, my God didn't see that, really. No, he saw it. He, he sees all your sin. So David being broken, we're transitioning to my next point, being broken and honest, he's putting the reality and the ugliness of sin into its proper perspective. He can now move to God's saving mercy. We're going to feel this this morning as David moves from confession and brokenness to praying for restoration and transformation. And David uses this really neat illustration. He first says, purge me. He's like, God, I need you to do something for me. But he says, purge me with hyssop and I will be whiter. I will be, what is it? Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The illustration of hyssop is on the screen. If we get to that right there is what hyssop looks like. I didn't really know. So I went and looked it up. But that's hyssop. And what, what would have come to David's mind about hyssop, it's a beautiful image of, that Israel would know well. In Leviticus 14, it was used in, the, in a cleansing ritual for those who had leprosy or other impurities. What you would do, it's kind of weird, you'd take two birds, you would kill one bird, drain its blood, and you would take hyssop and the other bird and wash it in this other bird's blood. You would then apply it to someone with leprosy or other uncleanness and they would be cleaned. So David had that image in mind. And there was a more famous image of hyssop being used in the Old Testament. It was, it was um, probably David remembered this one more because they celebrated this every year from Exodus 21 when hyssop was used during the exodus from Egypt. God instructed them to use hyssop and apply the blood of a Passover lamb on the doorpost of the house. And we have this story in, in Exodus 21. I'm going to read this to you. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select a lamb for yourself according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and it will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And then the story goes on that he tells them to remember this and this instituted observing this as a statue for your sons and sons to come. And so this was actually what, we see Moses did, David did. It was, they would just practice this Passover meal. Even to Jesus, you hear of Jesus having the Passover meal with his disciples. They remembered this, and they told the story every single time. So David could be bringing this illustration to bear here. 
One thing interesting is David, in this moment, he knew God could do something. He knew that God could cleanse lepers. He knew that God could pass over Israel. He had faith that God would provide. He had faith that God could provide for him. that he could clean him, that he could wash him whiter than snow. I don't think David quite knew how, but he had faith in what God was able to do because God showed him hints of what he was able to do. And if he had faith in another, that God would fully restore him. That even his broken bones that he says we see in verse 8 and 11, that even his broken bones would rejoice. So in this act of purging him with hyssop, he was clean. So picture this, a man that has been beaten and crushed by a sin. But he knew that even the brokenness, every part of him would rejoice. He says, hide your face from my sins. Create in me a clean heart. Cast me not away. David is building and growing in the Lord's cleaning, confessing as he moves towards the Lord. This new white shirt that's been cleaned probably had an arm and a sling just hobbling like I've, I've been beaten. My sin has crushed me. But he keeps on moving towards God. He says, let me hear joy. I know there's still sin in me, so hide, hide your face from me, God. I need you to give me a new, clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. I know I'm not worthy, but don't cast me out of your presence. Don't take your... Spirit from me is what he's saying. Church, we all need for God to hide his face from our sins, don't we? Creating us clean hearts that are dirty, and he does. Ultimately, through Jesus Christ, God accomplished what David longed for in Psalm 51. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross proved the atonement, provided the atonement for sin. And his resurrection offers us assurance and forgiveness and a new life to all who place their faith in Jesus. In Christ, God hides his face from our sin and blots out all our iniquities, granting us the gift of complete forgiveness and reconciliation with him. So moving forward, trusting in God's love and mercy, David says in verse 12, Restore then to me the joy of your salvation. You notice he doesn't say my salvation. He points as the object of God's salvation. This is God's work for us. It's not something we can do. 
For David, the joy of salvation would have included a sense of relief and freedom and renewal that comes from having his sins forgiven and being reconciled to God. It is a joy that springs forth when we realize the weight of our transgressions and sins against God. We are now in right relationship with the Creator. Excuse me. How do we feel when we realize that we have been forgiven of our sins? What emotions are provoked in us? Have you had a tough week? I have. Are you aware of failings this last week? Are they just coming rushing to your mind? And once again, we hear this message of hope in Christ. We should be astounded and marvel at what Christ has done for us. It should provoke something into us. It should restore this joy of God saving you when you least deserved it. What do you do with that? We should sing. We should rejoice. We should marvel at what God has done. It should be amazing. It should cause us to do what David does here in this text. It should cause us to respond in worship. Broken humility and worship before God. And David says in verse 17, I will teach, my tongue will sing, my mouth will declare this amazing grace of forgiveness. You ever meet someone that's newly been saved? There's something cool and special. They just love and they're astonished at what Jesus has done for them. They are. They want to tell everybody, and they can't believe that you can actually lose that joy. Because it's so real to them. What happens to us that we aren't amazed anymore? Maybe we minimize the gravity of our sin. And we end up marginalizing the cross. I don't think we feel the gravity and the weight of sin in Christ. We hold on to this sweet grace of unforgiven. It doesn't break our hearts before a holy God. It should crush us. We walking back with a sling and a broken arm. okay to confess the magnitude and the ugliness of our sin to God to one another what do you do if you're a guilty man in a courtroom and you're standing before God 
and your sin is revealed. Guilty. And someone else comes and says, put all that on me. And God accepts that. How would you respond to the person who took the guilt? Would it not provoke worship? You want to go shout it from the roof. But there's still something lingering in David and in us that keeps us from moving forward. And it's seen as David is trying to like get back up and work and share the goodness of God and enjoy his salvation. He's like, wait a minute. Verse 14, he says, deliver me from the blood guiltness, oh God. He's like, God's work's not done in us. Do you know what the guilt of sin feels like? Like paralyzes you. Makes you think your identity is in who you were and your sin. And forget who you are in Christ. Guilt paralyzes and condemns and keeps us shackled to our sin. I feel that. It keeps me from serving and preaching. It keeps me from actively worshiping God with everything I have. I'm not able to do this. Do you know, I just, these are bad things in my life. I'm, I, can't, I can't actually talk to someone about Jesus. I'm not clean myself. This guilt that just continues, this blood guilt that continues to ravage us and to keep us from walking in the fullness of joy and in our Savior's grace that he gives us. It's through God's crowning work of making the sinner righteous that David can experience true freedom and restoration. In Christ, church, we have the assurance that our sins are forgiven and washed away, no matter how deep-rooted our past sins may be. The grace of God is more sufficient to clean and restore us as it was for David. Were your sins worse than that? Murdering, covering up, deceiving. The grace of God is big enough. What Christ has done is big enough to cleanse you of your sins. The hope and freedom we find in Christ not only liberates us from the bondage of sin, but also empowers us to live transformed lives for him. So we can live in the joy and forgiveness of God. We can fulfill our mission as Jesus has given us to make disciples who treasure, live, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in my conclusion... I can inform you that my relationship with my dad is fully restored. My disobedience through my repentance and my spanking covered my sin. We hang out, we talk, we have fellowship. He doesn't remind me of my sin anymore. Like me, David was fully restored 
to God and in right relationship with him. And in summary, we're going to summarize this last section. This is my conclusion. So I'm almost done. Sorry, it's gone a little longer. I didn't, I shouldn't have picked an entire Psalm 51, but I did. So bear with me. It's going to be a really good conclusion because it's about God wanting our hearts. Look with me at verse 16. And this was like, this kind of puzzled me when I, sometimes we don't get through a whole psalm, we like stop in the middle of it, but this is really a powerful image that David gives us. He says in verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Then in verse 19, he says, then you will delight in right sacrifice. (laughs) You see that? Like, what changed? Verse 17 changed. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There's times where we sin against a holy God, and the first thing we want to do is go read our Bible and pray more. The first thing we want to do is go earn it and pay something for God to, like, forgive us. But what this tells us is God doesn't want our reading our Bible, though he does. He wants our broken and contrite heart before him. When we sin, we go to a holy father who has forgiven us in Christ, and we confess our sins. Out of the confession of our sins and the awareness of our Savior, he delights in right sacrifices. He delights in your work. Church, at the end of the day, we need to know what our response to God and our sin needs to be. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for me, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. All of us, church, all of us are going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And picture this. He opens the filing cabinet of your life and he shows you all your sin that you ever committed. And he says, what account do you give of this? And what's our only response? I trusted in your son. And what is he going to say? You're right, you're forgiven. And then he's going to open the filing cabinet and he's going to pull all the good things that you've done. And he's going to show it to you and all of heaven. And he's going to say, see, this is proof that they trusted in my son. So the lingering question from 2 Samuel 12, 13. How does the Lord 
put away David's sin? The answer is the same way ours, through Jesus Christ. Look with me to Romans 3.25 for the answer of how God does this. God put forward Christ as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so he could in his forbearance pass over former sins. That's how he forgave David of his sins. Whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood to be received with faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his, design, design, his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God was not sweeping David's sin under the rug. God sees from the time of David down through the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place so that David could have faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work. And David would be united with Christ and united with us. So where do you place your faith? Where's our hope lie? The blood of Jesus is enough to cleanse us of all our transgressions, all our iniquities, all the twisted past the blood guilt that seems to follow you around that paralyzes you, the blood of Jesus is big enough. If it's big enough to allow God not to see your sin and place it on his son, his grace is enough for you to walk in freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Help us to forgive our debtors, Lord, as you've forgiven us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.